HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Forever Cheese, masters of the Mediterranean. For more information, visit forevercheese.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and we are at Roberta's Pizza as usual. Um, we have a very special guest here in the studio. And um, Annie, I'm just going to flash back to when I first met you in 2009. Um, actually, I first met you at the Brooklyn Food Coalition Conference or something like that. Um, but then I came to visit Eagle Street Rooftop Farm with a half-brain notion of writing an article about it. And um, I didn't know anything really about farming at that time. And you just took a moment and um, actually you just took several minutes of your time to just explain to me with such an in-depth understanding of like every single microbe in the soil right now and um, all the like temperature like conditions and um, with just this wonderful passion and enthusiasm and I was just blown away and I couldn't even like jot down my notes fast enough um, because you clearly had such an amazing rich um, passion for what you were doing and it was I was just thunderstruck so it's nice to have you in the studio Annie it's Um, a pleasure to be here Kathy thanks that that of course I should say is Annie Novak she's the head farmer and co-founder of the nation's first commercial green roof vegetable farm Eagle Street Rooftop Farm and it's in Greenpoint Brooklyn you're also the manager of Edible Academy at New York Botanical Garden where you've um uh, been organizing and teaching for several years, and you're the founder and director of Growing Chefs, a Field to Fork education program. Um, so, Annie, your book is called The Rooftop Growing Guide How to Transform Your Roof into a Vegetable or Farm, a Vegetable Garden or Farm. And I gotta say, you own this topic, um, and it is something that has really come out of, sprung out of almost nowhere. Um, so, tell me, um, well, first of all, congrats on this book. Thank you. It's a really positive, I think, um, uh, progression in urban gardening. So, um, 
<clears throat> you write in the beginning, though, that when you first were approached about co-founding the Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, you didn't think it was a great idea, because coming from your background in regular soil farming in the ground, you didn't think it was feasible. Yeah. That's amazing. No, I and, and thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's um, it's funny when you retell the story of us meeting at the rooftop farm, because I'm always self-aware as a person that's very passionate about what I do, the, mm-hmm. the divide between... Um, educational and fun or funcational <laughs> information versus just pedantic, which people who are passionate can be. So I think, I think what I love about what our conversation we initially met is that, you know, when I have an opportunity to talk about the things I love and that's resonating with someone that's also a, a naturally curious and intelligent um, information seeking person such as yourself, there's a, it's a very wonderful beginning of a wonderful friendship. Um, Absolutely. And, and certainly you could probably guess that is in large part how I ended up getting um, asked to, and then now, publishing a book because at the end of the day I have found um, both on the farm and off the farm you know information is power and there's a line in the book also um, I'll get back to that introduction Mm -hmm. in a minute but there's a line in the book where I talk about um, the phrase ignorance is bliss which has always deeply bothered me I, I find ignorance is not bliss it is disempowerment and and what I love about what I do now as an urban farmer is the is the opportunity to, to teach. And, you know, mm-hmm. you'll see that in the book. Um, it is very funcational. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so in the introduction, as you mentioned, I, I admit right off the bat, I think in the first sentence, mm-hmm. after saying thank you to 200 people in the acknowledgments, <laughs> because this book was a labor of love of many, um, that I thought the idea was nuts. I think yeah. rooftop farming, you know, is something that has really... It's incredible to me that in let's be generous and say the last decade, but it's really been since 2008, 2009, we've completely changed the vocabulary around how we think about our rooftop landscape. And Mm -hmm. I, I did not anticipate that sea change in our perception of urban spaces. Um, when I was first in a coffee shop with Ben Flanner speaking about rooftop farming and all of the potential therein, you know, I, I, I have to admit I was, I did think the idea was crazy and I go on to say in the book, and it's true that that is in large part why I said yes, because I think the moments where you recognize the really beautiful potential in an idea is, of course, the minute you mm-hmm. you just run with it. And having that open mindedness of um, and also just the deep horticultural knowledge that you have to to have that guts and say, let's do something different instead of the same way we've always done things. And you know, in an urban environment, it's, there's going to be differences too. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, the the horticultural knowledge that I had at the time was, was part of why I said yes. And part of why I wanted to say no, because, Mm -hmm. you know, rooftop farming is people will learn through doing it or through reading the book and, and learning a little bit more about the topic. You're not dealing with the same type of growing media or soil. Mm -hmm. You're not dealing with the same, um, as you mentioned, I love microbes. You're not dealing with the same, you know, microbe life in the the media or as much right on a rooftop you have to really kind of implant a lot of those bugs and um nutrients yeah i I talk about that a little bit in the book as well because i think one of the fascinating things is it's it's you know it really it's kind of like when you make cookies like we're going to call it all cookies it's all called soil but of course all cookies are different they all have different ingredients and Mm -hmm. they all have different results and they all bake differently and soil is just as dynamic um although less delicious to eat um (laughs) So I, you know, one of the things we explore a lot in rooftop gardening is, you know, your container garden, which is filled with peat moss, and my green roof farm, which is a engineered aggregate blend that involves some compost and involves some additives. They're, they're different beasts. It's, you know, it's a brownie to a, 
to a meringue. They're, they're, they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, so in any case, part of why I would say yes to a project like this is that, you know, all of these unusual space gardening projects, whether it's urban gardening in containers, urban gardening in raised beds, urban gardening on a rooftop, urban gardening in uh, an aeroponic system, mm-hmm. you there's there's such a cool learning curve to figuring out how to get plants to work in all these different spaces. Mm-hmm. And that's deeply intriguing. It, it's horrifying if you're not an optimistic person, but it's also deeply intriguing. Let's talk about the horrifying, because during the first growing season at Eagle Street, um, you got tons of media attention. I mean, worldwide, people were coming to photograph, and it was a stunning you know, sight to see, the, you know, the landscape, uh, skyline of New York City in the background, and then this lush green roof filled with vegetables. And um, but at the same time, you had a lot of trials and tribulations. That was your first growing season, and you're getting all this attention. And I remember there was like a, a six weeks or something of complete rain. Like, and uh, were you just freaking out behind the scenes, like everything's gonna go to hell? Or yeah, did you I, have those I, moments. Two thousand and nine, we had two straight months of uninterrupted rain, minus two days. It was astonishing, and I think two things came up for me. One is that. 2009 was the first year as as an experienced grower who'd been working in farming for many, many years. Um, it was my first year ever working on a green roof, which mm-hmm. is a very specific type of environment, both for the plants and then also just in a city landscape. And, and also for Ben Flanner, too, who co-founded it. I mean, this is his first growing season ever. Yes, it's true. Yes, <laughs> so. yes it's true. Yeah, we had, a lot of, um, we had a lot of great conversations about that because one of the things that I added to the project, which I was glad to do, is in the moments of deepest panic, I, I could typically add the reflection from years of experience of saying, no, no, don't fully panic yet. This part will get better. <laughs> don't fully panic, Ben. Um, but uh, no, we made it out. It was a, it was a beautiful year. But I, what I'd point out about the, the rainfall is that farming aside, the thing that I loved and what's so incredible about this project is, you know, as a green roof, what it's there to do in the city landscape is absorb stormwater. Mm-hmm. And then it holds the stormwater and then gently percolates it out later over a slower duration. And what that does is in New York City, where we have um, combined sewage overflow, is it allows that stormwater retention um, remediate some of the detrimental effects of combined sewage overflow. So if you have a huge period of rain, normally water is cascading down flat rooftops, um, concrete sidewalks, like there's no soil to absorb the rain. Mm-hmm. And so all that excess sewage waste gets pushed out into our, you know, beautiful, we're living in Manhattan Island, like we're surrounded <laughs> by, well, we have more coastline than any other place in the world, I think, besides Hong Kong, mile for mile okay. in New York City. Yeah, because of all the inlets and the boroughs and what have you. So we should be more sensitive to ourselves as a coastal city, practically. <laughs> and um, and that, to me, again, as a farmer, like I'm crying because I'm watching all the nutrients drain out of the soil, which is what happens during heavy rain. But I was also really excited to see the difference in the sluicing of the water off of the empty roofs around us versus the retention we were able to have. And it was the moment, I think, that really sealed the deal where I was like, listen, like I might always be slightly regretful that I can't have cows up here. I might be always slightly regretful that the the growing media doesn't have the same you know nutrient profile as some of the other sites I take care of. But in terms of the precedent we were setting for the value of green roofs mm-hmm. in a city for its environmental purposes, there's nothing like it. And it, it is why I, I know... I um I no longer keep drip irrigation and I no longer water as much at the farm and we've really pushed our crops. We want to keep doing edible crops. We really pushed it towards drought tolerant crops because I I in that year in particular really saw the benefits of of green roofing, which is a totally separate book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> green roofs in general. Um 
yeah. So, so again, in a moment of great woe, I was able to find um, a light in the, at the end of the tunnel, as, as usual. It was tested <laughs> and, you know, tested at the seam, uh, pushed to the seams. Yes. Um, and yes. survived. Um, tell me a little bit about the difference between green roofs and the rooftop farm or garden. So the real simple answer is just that the the from the very beginning we worked with a company, Good Green, um, who were hired by Broadway Stages, our, our building host and the farm owner. Um, Good Green worked with a company called Rooflight, and Rooflight um, was very open and helpful about developing a growing media, which is what you call greener mm-hmm. soil, that was better adapted to growing vegetables. Okay. So you know most green roofs are set up to grow sedum or some sort of mix of ornamental or... yeah ornamental definitely ornamental but you know you can also have i don't want the word ornamental to sound useless to mm-hmm. all the foodies in the world <laughs> ornamental could be pollinator habitat it can help with um you know the heating and cooling that sure. greeners are known for for the for the building's benefits it definitely helps with stormwater retention greeners mm-hmm. in general are awesome mm-hmm. no matter if they're growing kale or not um but what roof light provided is they they basically um they took the weight load our building was able to carry and they upped the amount of compost and organic matter in the soil so that when we were growing vegetables, we weren't growing them in what would normally be a more aggregate heavy mix. Um, I'm trying to think of another cookie metaphor, but (laughs) but I do spend an awful lot of time talking about this in the book because I think that's a really interesting transition for the green roof media world and for the media world in general is is you know you can't grow can't grow great healthy vegetables both the plants aren't healthy and they're not that good for you in mm-hmm. soil that's less rich and so mm-hmm. they did that for us um and that in a light and it's light too well yeah part of it was that um green roof media in general has to be a certain weight but we also if i remember correctly we would have potentially had a greater soil depth Mm. except we sacrificed depth, which would have come from these lightweight particulates like shale and clay Mm -hmm. in order to have slightly shallower soil, but it it had a um, richer nutrient density coming from the um, uh, growing media made of compost and Mm -hmm. the other um, organic matter that was in it. Um, This is something that actually Rooflight on their website, and if you ask them, explain really beautifully, and they were gracious enough to give me a tour of their facilities, which are near Hershey, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, in order to write the book, and there's a there's a photo series in the book where it shows sort of the story of their soil versus the story of the soil that's made it. Of McEnroe is the farm I use as an example, McEnroe Organic Farm, because McEnroe Organic Farm makes a really good potting soil for everyone yeah. who's a container gardener, and Roof Light makes a really good growing media soil for everyone who's a green roof uh, <laughs> aspirational farmer, um, and and they're very different. And they, I'll with the cookies again, like I think that's what I love about making soils in general. And what's so cool as a person who's always just walked onto land and had to deal with it. When you learn about soil manufacturing, it, the, you create terroir. It's, it's really interesting and it really affects the plants. Yes. And that's why like this book is such a milestone because we've had plenty of books about container gardening and, um, and also green roofing and, you know, the, the different uses of that. So this is like just, a new frontier really that um you're breaking ground in and um it's taken what seven years now that you've um you know taken your notes and learned from the experiences and uh come out with this book so tell me how how is it going right now and eagle street uh eagle street's doing great seven years later (laughs) (laughs) yeah seven years in it's hard to believe um we are uh we're having we had a really wonderful year last year actually and one of the things that's the best elements of the farm to me and something that um, I'm very proud of is every year we've um, brought in a group of folks to work with us, usually anywhere between 10 and a dozen, and they stay with me all season right. and learn alongside. Right. 
and essentially run the farm. Um, and the magical thing is that a lot of those people now, this is our um, sixth class of that group. Um, a lot of those people have gone on to found and work with other farms and urban farming projects. Um, I recently met one of your protégés who's working at the Low Line. Yes, Robin, <laughs> yeah, Robin Shapiro great. at the Low Line. Yeah, so Robin, um, Robin's one example of someone who took, she had left a career that she wasn't as into and f- knew she wanted to learn more about plants, um, came to Eagle Street and is sort of in a, I love that, like this, like clay putty stage where people mm-hmm. are very like plastic and malleable <laughs> in their in their ideas. And and I, as you know, love talking about things, especially plants. So by the end of a four to seven month program, um, she left and was more deeply dedicated than ever to, you know, both plants, but also the urban exposure that the the importance of exposure to plants to people in urban environments, which is really at the end of the day. I mean, to me, the biggest commodity that comes out of the farm is is the farm itself. It is postcard sized is you know it's a little postage stamp of a mm-hmm. roof it's teeny but the impact we have is massive and that's so important to me and that's why i spend a lot of energy training people because at the end of the day that's that's going to be the the legacy we that's going to be the inspirational yeah the yeah the legacy that we'll see and i love how you write that um you're not just growing plants you're growing people too very you much can so. definitely see that ripple effect throughout the city very so. much so i yeah, yeah probably sometimes the people are um i don't want to say they're tastier than the plants the plants are very tasty but the the people often end up coming out of the farm in a much more healthy and robust stage than the plants because it is actually pretty challenging to grow on a green roof <laughs> we do our best <laughs> yeah Seems they're good like people it. um we're gonna cut to a quick little commercial break and we'll be right back chatting more Forever Cheese is dedicated to sourcing the absolute best and most authentic products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. They started out with just one cheese, then four, and never knew they could have the breadth of product and the richness of working with so many fantastic producers across the Mediterranean. Michelle Buster and Pierluigi Sini have this singular vision to be the best they could be and bring products never before seen to the U.S. They were sure that with education and sampling, there was a market for such a myriad of handcrafted traditional and non-cheeses and specialty foods. Pierluigi comes from a family of cheesemakers, and after teaching Michelle all he knew, together they set out to one day at a time make a difference, not only in our country, but in the lives of each of their producers. Forever Cheese prides themselves on being amongst the few that work directly with all of their producers. Forever Cheese created a brand, Mitica, meaning mythic. This brand is meant to unify many of their products over the various countries and provide a recognizable name that consumers can equate with trust and quality. Forever Cheese is very socially conscious, and they donate and participate with City Harvest and numerous other charities. They're also actively supporting renewable energy and for more than seven years have been donating to support renewable energy, reforestation, and hydroelectric. For more information, visit forevercheese.com. All right, we're back chatting more with Annie Novak, uh, whose new book is called The Rooftop Growing Guide. And uh, speaking of education and growing people as well as plants, you know, this book is really meant to be the 
you know, practical handbook for just about anyone um, with uh, space on a roof. Um, so tell me, how did you, because a lot of the things you teach, you actually show like in person and you have to see. So how did you like translate? I know you have like some beautiful photographs, but you have a lot of illustrations here too. Um, did you, did you draw those? You did. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the, the book, the, the very first meeting I had with, um, Lisa Regal, who is my first editor over at 10 speed. Um, I walked in the meeting with a big stack of gardening books mm-hmm. and a bunch of notes. And I said, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed about gardening books and where they're most successful is that in some ways they borrow a page from comics. You know, there's this step by step, you, you know, that. passage mm-hmm. of time, like <laughs> practical application. And I, I have always been drawn towards the gardening books that focus on, you know, showing you things the same way that a recipe is written. Like, here's you do this and then you do that. And so what I did is um, I had taken a bunch of samples that I really liked in terms of layout. And some of them were from cookbooks, actually, um, and and brought them to her and said, do you think we could make the book like this? Because you have to understand, you know this from writing books, but, you know, when I was approached, it was like, turn in a chapter outline, you have 50,000 words, like, go nuts. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, no, girl, <laughs> here's what we're going to do. So um, so it's been very fun because, you know, the, I, I, I worked you with 10 Speed and, um, and they are uh, some of the most beautiful uh, books that that I've seen coming out in the last couple of years come out of that that mm-hmm. publishing house and um, I felt very lucky that that's who I was working with because I knew that they would be receptive to a lot of these these creative ideas so one thing to know if you are a reader of this book is first I love you and second <laughs> uh, I thank you and then third is that um uh yeah so I uh I laid out the whole book with um uh Elizabeth Stromberg and uh who's who's at 10 speed the designer cool she's the designer and um and in laying it out I was really probably annoyingly um particular <laughs> about making sure that there was like the right margin size so you could take notes and there were um the photographs we used were like placed at a certain size so that you could flip yeah, through and feel like it's very mm-hmm. visual yeah and um, I was really lucky because the photographers I worked with Jackie Snow and Naima Green um, in addition to being hyper talented, I mean, like luminous, rich for a gardening book, it's like gorgeous. It's like art photography. Um, they're also two of my best friends, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, the illustrator I worked with, Lauren Haynes, is another really wonderful woman that was my um, New York neighbor, and we became very close friends. And then she moved to San Francisco, so we we did this as a coastal wow, a bi-coastal project. And the and the layers of nerdiness I will be brief <laughs> with, but um, I grew up reading comics. I grew up reading Tintin and Asterix and Prince Valiant. And then as a girl from Chicago, moved on to Chris Ware and Lily Caray. And um, then I mean, come to New York, Adrian Tomine. I mean, these are all like, you know, the people that do the cover of The New Yorker. This is like yeah. really fabulous illustrators. And um, my mother's a painter. And um, I knew if I was going to tackle drawing, which, you know, was very presumptuous of me to, to jump in on that, that one, I wanted to work with a collaborator because in the tradition of comics, there's the person that does the line drawings, there's a colorist, and there's an anchor who does the text. And I, I've always loved that, you know, that image of, like, these dudes alone in a room, like, making Batman come to life. <laughs> so I wanted to work with someone. And then um, I wanted it also to have a color tone that retained, that, stayed, that stayed classic. So I was, again, thinking about Tenten, which is um, the Hergé comic about the young detective boy. Um, <laughs> who, who, how would you describe him? He's, like, ageless. But Tenten like Madeline, like Babar, like these classic children's books of, of everybody's youth, Eloise, they're, t- they're beautiful color schemes. And so what Lauren did, because she's an, a genius, is um, she actually took the colors from those illustrations and she then printed them 
and then she made her own inks and then she scanned those inks and then that's what she used to color my line drawings. So we were working wow. like literally off of the exact like the the classic color palette of these of these, you know, comics and, and storybooks that have been, you know, true it forever. So then what, so vibrant. Too. Yes. Yeah. And, and then and then what Betsy did is she used that to do all the color washes for all of the call out boxes. Oh, great. So throughout the book, there are these sections because I don't want anyone to have to read it all the way through. Mm-hmm. There are these little sections. Um, we have experts. Like how to build a warm bin, you know, how to build a Burley's Tongues and Funnel. Yes. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is that? You'll have to read to find out if you like bugs. Uh, uh, yeah. So ten, again, I, I, I could go on. But um, the other the other thing that should be known about the illustrations, because it's fun, you're actually at a page now where you're looking at a seed packet that says Caroline Seed Oxheart Tomatoes. And I was using that to illustrate how to read a seed package. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister's name is Caroline. And so if you read that description... <laughs> Okay, this variety is known for its perfect balance of sweetness and acidity. A family favorite. Yeah, so th- there's no <laughs> such tomato but my sister. With her perfect balance of sweetness and acidity. Nice. I managed to geocache um, all of my family's names into the book <laughs> um, through jokes like that. No um, and actually the... the the uh, the inside of the cover has um, a series of trees in it, and the leaves are um, lines and dots. It's all Morse code. So if you read Morse code, you can oh find out who all my secret favorite people are. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Get this book and decode it <laughs> for the fun little Easter eggs you've planted. That's yes. amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's probably part of why I lost a lot of sleep in the last two years, but. <laughs> You never know when you're going to get to write another book. So every nerdy thing I could do, hey, I did I mean, it. as the first like really comprehensive rooftop growing guide, you you went all out. And I did. It is beautiful <laughs> to read, and what I love about it is so applicable, a- applicable because um, you know, talking about New York City, I feel like a lot of the conversation around um, Eagle Street and your work has been very city centric. But this book is for anyone in the suburbs. You know, anyone who, and, and there's so many variables too, but you go into it and like help them choose, um, help anyone choose, that is. So it's really comprehensive. And uh, I mean, how long did it take you to write this? Uh, <laughs> I, it, you know, it, it's a, it's, it was a two year project from, from discussion uh, of contract yes. to finish. Okay. I wrote it. Truly uh, writing at a computer in three months, mm-hmm. uh, which that. were the worst. The wor- because I, I do work full time. I work full time for the New York Botanical Garden, which I love. That part was great. Um, and then I run the rooftop farm, Eagle Street, and I run Greg Chefs. Um, so the three months were, I think it was January, February, and March uh, so a the, year ago. The day time for the growing season. Yeah, but it was it was from four in the morning to seven in the morning, um, and then I would go to work and come home from work, and I would write from yeah four a.m. to seven a.m. and then from uh, six thirty p.m. to eight thirty p.m. and I had a, a day a year ago in February um, last year where I was so so I, it must have been stress. I didn't sleep for forty five hours, <laughs> and I I was the probably the most unhappy I've ever been in my life. And I only mention that because. Um, I, I love this book. Like, this book is mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly what I wanted, and that's the kind of work it took. So what I'm excited about is in sharing it with people, as you said, it's for rooftop gardeners, but it's also for people who are small space growers, um, front lawn gardeners, um, container gardeners on their terrace. I, I love gardening, and I love plants. Mm-hmm. And 
if my losing 40 hours of sleep a year ago, February, was what I needed to do to carry that message forward in the world, like, that was easy. <laughs> took one for the team. Um, I love how you have, like, snippets throughout here, um, too, of some of the, um, the, I guess, the newer projects that were inspired by Eagle Street, including uh, where we're sitting right now, Roberta's Restaurant Garden, up on the roof, which is literally above our heads right now. Um, and then you have, uh, oh, a little, like, container garden here with kegs that are hollow, uh, oh, who's, thought off. Who's, whose garden who is that? that? What what thoughtful genius. I don't know. Kathy Arway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we um, I remember years ago um, visiting you at the Six Point Brewery when you had started a container garden there. And what I remember about it, not only was that you had used... Um, sawed open beer kegs to start mm-hmm. it which was gorgeous and hilarious <laughs> but you also kept chickens yeah which is something that um uh was was a you had a really beautiful a-frame coop construction um what do you have a sp- star spangled hamburg yes the star spangled yeah. hamburg hen yeah they're apparently still alive on brooklyn grange rooftop farm no kidding which, um, those old girls <laughs> yes they're really old girls oh wonderful yeah i mean i and so you know as you saw in your own experience with with the six point um brewery garden you know there's a lot of creativity that you can put into uh your growing mm-hmm. space in a city in particular because i think you're forced by a lack of resources to reinvent your own right. resources. I mean, you were mulching with spent beer grains. Like, right. that's well, not a traditional mulch, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's part of um, what you're showing here is that you can make it your own and and reuse what you've got around you. You should, and, in fact, because yeah. I think I think the, the go-to, um, I'm actually putting together an article right now that's like a instructables on rooftop gardening. And the first, one of the first things I say is like, don't feel compelled to go to your nearest box store, buy bags of peat moss, walk them up to your roof and throw them in a plastic container. That's fine if you just Mm -hmm. want to grow something, but there's a really rich and interesting um, challenge to urban farming that requires you to be a little more creative and flexible. And that's part of the exciting thing about this book is that in the course of writing it, I went and visited um, and worked with about 23 different rooftop farms and experts. It's not the story of my farm at all, Mm -hmm. um, at all, because what I do thanks to Broadway Stages and Good Green and Ben's vision, what I do is very unique. And I, I, I think it can be replicated, but what can certainly be replicated are places like um, the places I profile in the book, like Roberta's Container Style Gardening, like um, Uncommon Ground in uh, Chicago, which or yeah, Uncommon Ground in Chicago, which is the first certified organic rooftop farm in the country. It's all container-based. Higher Ground Farm in Boston, which is milk crate-based and very um, applicable to people who are worried about weight load and snow load. Um, I looked at Eli Zavar's rooftop, which has been doing greenhouse hydroponics oh, wow. for on uh, on his roof um, for longer than anyone in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I I wanted to show kind of show the off what everybody else range, is doing yeah. this this secret world of rooftops that, that's <laughs> hidden, but it's you know it's it's magical up there. Absolutely. Um, so, for folks who might want to get involved or learn a little bit more, can they? check out uh, any upcoming events around this book or perhaps around green roof gardening in general? Yeah, so if you are interested, you can go to rooftopgrowingguide.com and rooftopgrowingguide.com lists all of our upcoming events. We have a really wonderful and fun party planned for March 1st at the Brooklyn Brewery and you can get tickets now. We're going to be um, serving up snacks with um, Ovenly and Andrew from Andrew Day Field from Takaway Beach. We've got um, Gotham Greens and Madewell and Gardener Supply and Boggs Footwear and Hudson Valley Seed Library and Growing Chefs and Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, all of them oh contributing gosh. to this party. It's going to be a blast. Um, and also at that website, 
um, you will see the list of lectures. We're offering a lot of free workshops, lectures, classes um, from now through May across the country in about five different cities. And we're very, very excited to take this on the road. Perfect time for that. I'm so excited for this next season of your farm and also this um, this book and, and the reach that this book will have. Thank you. I'm, I'm pretty pumped, too, and it will certainly stop me from talking so much. I can just hand you the book, and I won't say many things. <laughs> and check out rooftopgrowingguide.com. Um, that's about all the time we have for today, but thank you so much, Annie, and inspiration, as always. Thank you, Kathy. Great job on this book. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Oh, I like the way you do. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.